Well, he's been, um, he's been given a bad rap. The beloved disciple did not believe until he entered the tomb and saw Jesus' burial clothes laid out and empty. Mary Magdalene thought he was the gardener until he spoke her name, and the other disciples believed only after Jesus appeared to them. But we call him Doubting Thomas. Well, why? Because he didn't take the disciples' word for it. He didn't believe in their testimony. We have seen the Lord, they said to him. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails in my hand in his side, I will not believe. Not believe the disciples? Surely the author of John's gospel understood immediately what was at stake. Not believe the disciples? Then where would we be? What if everybody insisted on handling the evidence? Maybe John had such a possibility in mind when he included this part of the story. Thomas had his demand fulfilled, but Jesus had the last word when he said that those who believe without seeing are blessed. And who needs evidence in the face of such words? To a community of believers relying on second and third hand testimony, such a scene provided critical support for that testimony. Because the story suggests that Thomas, and by extension, all the readers of John's gospel, could trust the disciples. They were telling the truth. There was no need for further evidence. The argument for trusting the disciples' word is capped off with words from Jesus. Jesus was raised from the dead. How do we know? We know because of the eyewitness accounts of the disciples. But you didn't need to be there to believe. And that's critical for a community that's expected to extend itself over time. You didn't need to be there to believe. In fact, you're called blessed if you believe without having been there. When I was doing some background reading for this sermon, um, I actually smiled while reading a commentary, which is not normal um, for me. Um, The commentator was um, by Raymond Brown, whose work on John is sort of like the ultimate, um, or at least had been for a number of decades. Um, And he made reference in his commentary to scholarly opinion on the Thomas story. And one of the things he suggested was that the story is just too neat. It, It fits together too well. It makes the point too perfectly, and so students of the Bible um, and, well, perhaps students of all kinds become skeptical when things uh, appear to be too neat. And so some scholars suggest because the story serves such an obvious purpose, it is in all likelihood not factual. Some scholars have doubts about the historicity, historicity of the doubting Thomas story. <laughs> they doubt that it ever happened, which is... I mean, they could be right. After all, what it would, I think we could make the case that it would be within John's rights as a divinely inspired author with clear pastoral goals to create this story, to make his point. Arguing from that perspective uh, that a writer's goals naturally influence and shape the story being told, it could be that John invented and added this piece to the appearance story just to ease the mind of his readers. His readers would get the message and would understand that their belief which existed without the benefit of physical evidence, was just as legitimate and maybe even more blessed than that of the disciples. And it would also serve to protect those readers from those outside the community who might ridicule or challenge their belief in the testimony of the disciples. Never mind that you didn't have first-hand contact with the risen Lord. You can trust the word of the disciples. You can believe without having seen and be blessed. Again, one could argue that John created the story to shore up the faith of his doubting audience. Or did John include the story not only because it happened to serve his pastoral purposes, but because it simply happened that way? 
Well, we don't know for sure. My preference is to give the biblical writers the benefit of the doubt and so assume the factuality of their stories. After all, with more than 33 years of history to choose from, it would seem to me to be unnecessary to make stuff up. And they did choose. There's no question about that. Every gospel writer selected those parts of the story and sort of situated them in certain ways in order to complete and accomplish their purpose as writers. But make things up? No, I doubt it. Now, I'm not arguing for a return to literalism and its obsession with defending things which don't need to be defended, but I am encouraging, I think, a willingness, or maybe just describing my own willingness, to give the gospel writers the benefit of the doubt and to spend more time listening for the truth of the story and less time worrying about its factuality. I mean, when preaching, I sometimes use stories from my own life to illustrate what I take to be the point of a given passage of Scripture. And many of those personal anecdotes, in hindsight at least, seem to have been tailor-made to make that point. Now, did I choose to highlight certain events to illustrate the point? Yes. Well, did I make those things up? Well, no. Sometimes life and all its serendipity just works that way. Besides, if John did make up this story to fit his pastoral agenda, why not make it more entertaining? John's version has no whiz-bang, no special effects, no sparkling repartee, just a man being confronted with the miraculous living body of a friend, a friend he'd seen killed just a few days before, and somehow seeing in the living wounded face, Jesus, the very face of God. He's not rebuked by Jesus for a lack of faith. He's not cast out by the other disciples for his failure to believe. He's not struck dead or made an example of or punished in any way. He's simply reminded. He's simply reminded that not everyone will be able to see what he sees, and yet they will believe And they are blessed because they're not limited to the evidence but can somehow see and believe in Jesus anyway. We are blessed because we aren't limited limited to the evidence but we somehow see and believe in Jesus anyway. Of course, to talk about the gospel story in terms like historicity and factuality is to engage in the very behavior for which Thomas has been perhaps unfairly branded. This quest for facts or proof is a very modern one. The modern way of knowing and believing depends to a great extent on scientific methods of proof. And this modern way of knowing is also characteristic of the church with liberals and fundamentalists both concerned with proving or disproving the historical value and trustworthiness of the biblical narrative. Thomas, at least as we've come to characterize him, could well be the patron saint of modernity. And here I am worrying about whether or not I can make the case for trusting the biblical story that I can somehow logically prove and so defend John's account of the resurrection appearances. It's that kind of thinking that got Thomas into trouble. Prove it to me and I'll believe it. Or to put it in missional terms, um, let me prove it so that you will believe it. If I can build an adequate and logical argument, I can convince you that the text is trustworthy, that you don't need to see in order to believe. Just trust in my ability to argue and prove But Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and have yet come to believe. And Jesus says to me, Jesus says to us, have you believed because you've proven the story to be true? Blessed are those who have no proof and yet have come to believe. Well, though I don't believe that Thomas has been fairly treated, there is no doubt that he needed to see Jesus in order to believe what he'd heard. And so... Jesus, in his mercy, in his mercy, gave Thomas what he needed and spoke a word to future hearers of the story, commending them and us for believing without seeing, for faith without proof, 
for being innocent and yet wise enough to discern the truth even when we can't see it. Thomas had his faith awakened in the encounter with the risen Jesus. And in the process of his awakening, we learn something about the nature of faith. That is, that there is room for doubt within the community of faith. It is striking to me that Thomas received no rebuke from Jesus and he was not removed from the community. Despite his refusal to believe the testimony of the others, men and women with whom he'd walked for a long time, these were his friends. This was his community that he wasn't listening to. Despite that, Thomas was not shunned. He was not told to keep his doubts to himself for fear of stumbling some weaker member. He was not told that he was being unfaithful or that he was challenging the authority of the body. Or at least if those things happen, they don't show up in the narrative. All John says is, a week later his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Thomas was with them. And I can't help but thinking that Thomas received the proof he needed because his sisters and brothers were able to tolerate his need for something more than their good word. That Thomas needed to see the risen one for himself. And rather than be threatened by such reluctance to get with the program, the community of disciples was able to make room for Thomas, sufficient room for him to stay and wait until he got what he needed to awaken his faith. The disciples gave Thomas a place to wait for his desire to be fulfilled, for his need to be fulfilled, for Thomas to be able to say along with his friends, his community, my Lord and my God. Well, um, what is my pastoral agenda? What am I getting at? Where am I trying to take you? Uh, well, I suppose, first of all, I would just invite us to give Thomas a break. I, I'm, I'm all for, um, re, uh, let's see, renaming him, I think, um, somehow reclaiming him, perhaps. Um, looking at this only, one, only this one episode in Thomas's life, I think it would be just as reasonable to call him Believing Thomas. I mean, isn't that how he ends up? My Lord and my God. Or Careful Thomas, Cautious Thomas, Conservative Thomas. Let me see before I make up my mind. How about honest Thomas? I mean, he strongly confessed his skepticism and then even more strongly declared his belief. I think this raises a caution for us about how we label one another. Perhaps that we should not label each other quite so quickly or easily after a single interaction or a memorable encounter. Because like all of us, Thomas was in our contemporary lingo. Thomas was on a journey of faith. He was open to new revelation as it came to him. He was willing to hear the truth, but was unafraid to challenge, to test. And then once satisfied, he was very willing to declare it in no uncertain terms with a great deal of spirit. So we could also call him perhaps Preaching Thomas, or maybe just plain old Thomas. Let's drop the doubting from Thomas. Secondly, I encourage us to give ourselves a break. Too many of us, I think, still listen to voices from the past, voices which still have power over us, voices which tell us that doubting is necessarily sin, that we're never supposed to admit to having any doubts, particularly when we come to church on Sunday morning, we must be perfect, or at least appear to be so. We should admit to doubts only in the past tense, as in before I was a Christian, I thought this. We're all familiar, I suppose, with those voices in our heads playing over and over again. 
I'd encourage us to cast those voices off. And let's follow Thomas in openly admitting when we don't believe or when we're struggling to believe, when we're wrestling with our faith. Let's not say the right thing or the thing that's expected of us just for the sake of saying those things. Let's tell the truth. Doing otherwise may be the only thing separating us from revelation and doubt. So let's tell the truth about our doubts. And third, let's be open to breaking through those doubts. Because we spend so much time resisting or recalling those voices from the past, we may find ourselves elevating our doubt to the level of belief. The point is, let's not be so caught up in the freedom we feel to doubt that we miss the opportunity to believe. Let's not be so reactive to the voices from our past that we never quite get free of their power to control us. In short, let's not look at the scars on Jesus' hand and ask to see some identification. Let's be open. Let's be open to recognizing God's face when it appears before us. Let's be willing to proclaim clearly and without self-consciousness, my Lord and my God. So third, let's not confuse our doubts with belief. And finally, finally, let's be grateful for those times when the light of Christ breaks in, awakening our slumbering hearts again to the truth of the resurrection and so causing us to rejoice. If John's first readers needed their faith strengthened by the story of Thomas, our need may be even greater. Lots of time separates us from the empty tomb. Time enough for the existence of the eyewitnesses to be as doubtful as the resurrection itself. As I noted, commentators wonder if this Thomas existed and if he really doubted. And while commentators may have professional reasons to doubt, there are PhDs at stake, the rest... The rest of us have practical reasons for the same. Or it may be better to say that we often live as if such things are at best fairy tales that we heard in childhood, tales that have no bearing on our lives. And yet, we keep listening to those old stories. We continue to gather together, both from our own need and the strength and grace of those whose belief preceded and reaches beyond our own. The gathered community accepts our need and makes room for us to wait for that need to be fulfilled, even if it is a need that the community itself perceives to be unnecessary, like the need to have the story proven to us. And the Spirit of the risen Christ comes to us in our need. The voice of God speaks to us, and not from far away and long ago, but from now and nearby, and our belief is awakened. It's stirred up again, and we realize, we remember, we rejoice that the Spirit is alive and working in and among us. We remember that there is power in these stories, power to rearrange our thinking, power to challenge our behavior, power to provoke us to set new priorities, power to call us into deeper relationship with the risen Lord. Like Thomas, we too may find our faith awakened if we have the courage to come and gather with others who believe, courage that carries us through our doubts, courage that keeps our faces turned toward the sun, when, even when all we can see are clouds. The light of the risen sun can break through our doubts and awaken our slumbering faith. Now, I don't know what Thomas expected when he showed up at the disciples' house that second time. Maybe he was already regretting his words, his unwillingness to take the disciples' word for it, or maybe he was steadfast in his commitment to wait and see. As one who has my own experience with doubt and much experience of desperately wanting to see Jesus face to face, I have my own opinion. 
I think Thomas returned with a belly full of butterflies, expecting his deepest wish to be fulfilled and worrying how he would cope if he was disappointed, caught, as it were, between the wish and the worry. Well, we don't know what Thomas expected to happen. We just know what did happen. Thomas saw and believed. And though we have never seen the risen Savior in the flesh, we know what it feels like when our doubt is pushed aside by something stronger. And for that moment, we believe with our whole hearts that Jesus is Lord and God. And we know, too, I pray, how such moments serve to reorient us and set us once again on the disciples' path. And that's exactly what happened to Thomas, or at least according to the legends about him. This is from uh, William Barclay's commentary on the Gospel of John. It's an old one with lots of stories in it. Um, I think we have copies of it in the church library. Anyhow, according to the apocryphal Acts of Thomas, so says Barclay, Thomas became the first Christian missionary to India. And this is how the story goes. The disciples, um, after Pentecost, divided the world among themselves to decide who would get to preach where, and Thomas got India. And he refused to go. So Jesus appeared to Thomas and urged him to go. Thomas still refused. Then Jesus outwitted Thomas by selling him to an Indian merchant. Now, when the merchant asked if Jesus was Thomas's master, Thomas said, yes. The merchant replied, I have bought thee from him. And Thomas said nothing. But in the morning, Thomas rose early and prayed. And after his prayer, he said to Jesus, I will go whither thou wilt, Lord Jesus, thy will be done. Barclay adds, it is the same old Thomas, slow to be sure, slow to surrender, But once this surrender is made, it is complete. But that's not all. A king of India commanded Thomas to use his carpentry skills to build the king a palace. The king gave Thomas money in plenty to buy materials and to hire workmen, but Thomas gave it all away to the poor. Always he told the king that the palace was rising steadily. The king was suspicious, and in the end he sent for Thomas. Hast thou built me the palace, he demanded. Thomas answered, yes. When shall we go and see it, asked the king. Thomas answered, thou canst not see it now, but when thou departest this life, then thou shalt see it. At first the king was very angry at Thomas, and Thomas was in danger of his life. But in the end, the king too was one for Christ, and so Thomas brought Christianity to India. I can almost see the smile on Jesus' face as he discovers that Thomas did indeed learn something from their encounter. Blessed are those who manage to believe without seeing. The king was so blessed. And so have we been blessed, even though we have not seen. We've been blessed too because when we doubted or needed just a little bit more from Jesus, when we were not on the same page or able to sing the same song as our sisters and brothers, we discovered that there was room for doubts in the community of faith, that the community of faith is strong enough and graceful enough to give room for our questions, our wishes, our needs, that the community is able to give us the room we need to wait for Jesus, to wait for Jesus to come and awaken within us the faith that requires no proof. And that community and its testimony continues to draw people to Jesus from every place under the sun 
a worldwide community whose faith is in what they have never seen and yet at the same time know to be true. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen.